What we're doing, though, this morning is we're, this is my last shot at kind of wrapping up Ecclesiastes. Next week's Pastor Fred, and then the week after that, Brandon's going to really finish it off. Uh, but this is my last chance to talk on Ecclesiastes, and I'm loving it. Because if you're like me at all, I, I love talking about the subject of life. Not like a little subcategory, but just stepping back and talking about the whole thing. Movies like Shawshank Redemption or, or recently I saw The Pursuit of Happiness or, or different things like that. They resonate with me. I love talking about life. The first book I bought after I became a Christian, I'd read Sports Illustrated uh, and Cliff Notes and everything up until age 22. And then I became a Christian. It was the weirdest thing. I just felt like I was supposed to read. And so I went down to the bookstore, and I didn't really know anything about Christian literature, and I bought a book. About a month later, I found um, The Wonderful World of Bad Christian Literature. It took me a couple of years to realize there's a difference between good Christian books and bad ones. Uh, but, but for that month in there, all I had was this book. It was the only book I knew to buy because I had heard it referenced in the movie Dead Poet Society, another movie that talks about life. And so I picked up as a new Christian, Henry David Thoreau's Walden, because... Um, he wasn't exactly a Christian, but, but listen to what he writes here and tell me if it doesn't resonate, okay? I mean, these words are sweet to me. When I, I used to have it memorized, and now I have kids, and so I can't remember anything. Um, but these words are sweet, and just listen to them and tell me they don't resonate. And this is what Thoreau writes. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential, the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discovered that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life. Living is so dear. Nor did I wish to practice resignation, unless it was quite necessary. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life, to live so sturdily and Spartan-like as to put to rout all that was not life to cut a broad swath and shave close, to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms. And if it proved to be mean, why then to get the whole and genuine meanness of it and publish its meanness to the world? Or if it were sublime, to know it by experience and be able to give a true account of it in my next excursion. And he goes on. Let me just go back one more time to the beginning. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discovered that I had not lived. That is what the writer of Ecclesiastes sets out to do, to test life, to see what we can learn about it, to wrestle with it, to, uh, to reduce it down to its lowest terms. And then he writes the book of Ecclesiastes and it's scattered and it's here and it's there and it's, it's little things he's learned, little things he's observed and it's wisdom and it's, it's all sorts of stuff kind of thrown out. But there's two main themes that we pick up through the book of Ecclesiastes, two things that he concludes or, or kind of reduces down to. And last week we talked about the first of those and it was uh, the enjoyment of life, that circumstances are going to always be outside of your control no matter how much you think you know, you're, you're one day away or one paycheck away or one friend, whatever it is, from actually putting things into control. Uh, it's never going to really be under control. But the thing that we can control is our attitude. 
that God will give us the gift to be able to enjoy life. And we can choose, even in the, the worst of situations, choose our own response and choose to still uh, enjoy and get the most out of life. And so that was the first thing that Solomon gave us. And the second thing kind of balances it out. I look at these two things this way. It's, it's kind of like the, the imminence of God, the, the closeness of God, the right here-ness of God, the relationality of God, and then kind of more God at a distance, the transcendence of God. And, and so the second one is that, and it's, it's fear. The second theme that Ecclesia, uh, the Ecclesiastes, writer of Ecclesiastes gives us is the theme of fear. And he says, and he counsels us to fear God. And so the first one here is this, simply fear means respect. And if you'll turn to Ecclesiastes, we'll start in chapter 3, and we'll pick it up in verse 9. And, and we begin with kind of that first strand of enjoying life, and he ends with this second one. Chapter 3, verse 9. What does the worker gain from all his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men, and he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom Yet they cannot fathom uh, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. And I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. Men will revere him. Turn over a couple pages and we'll look at chapter 8, verse 12. Chapter 8, verse 12 says this, Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long life, I know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. Who are reverent before God. And so the first thing here is fear means respect. There's a cluster of Hebrew um, words all kind of from the same root that are translated fear. And then the Greek, um, the Greek New Testament or the Greek Old Testament, when they translate it into Greek called the Septuagint, uh, it's really one kind of word here, and it's always translated fear. And if you get the King James Bible, these words for awe or respect or reverence are almost always just translated fear. And the more modern translations pick up on kind of where we're at with the English language, and that fear means dread oftentimes. And what the writers in context were, were saying a lot of times is, is the kind of fear that's just a fear of awe or respect. And so we see the word fear translated awe and respect a lot of times. And simply what I want to point out is fear means respect. When you fear something, you have respect for it. It doesn't matter whether it's something really hot and you're afraid you're going to get burned and you respect it, or whether it's a person that has a lot of power and, and a lot of uh, status and stature, and you, you are kind of in all of that. You, you are in fear of it. You're underneath it. You're not above it. You're not beside it, but you're underneath it. And so fear means respect. And I think really what we get from this in my mind is this. God is big. Nothing is added. Nothing is taken away from it. What God does will stand, and it will last. God is big. And we don't always see God as being big. Maybe sometimes it's, it's just a textbook subject, and we, we treat them like a, a definition or, or whatever it is. And the best way I've ever heard this illustrated is simply that a telescope and a microscope both do the same thing. They, they magnify. 
but a, a telescope takes something that's incredibly big that looks small because of the distance, and it brings it up close so that we can see it more in its actual size, just a, a, a fraction of its actual size. Does that make sense? A microscope takes something really big, and it kind of expands it so you can kind of dissect and analyze it. And a lot of times what we do is we treat God like he's under the microscope. God, explain yourself. God, you know, this doesn't make sense to me. And we start analyzing and scrutinizing and dissecting, and God is under the microscope. And what we need to do sometimes is step back and realize that God might appear small. We might not have it all figured out, but it's because he's so big. Uh, and we got to get the right lens to bring that bigness into focus, that he is not just something that we talk about, a noun or, or a proper noun or whatever. He is huge. He created the universe. And God is big. And we fear things that are big. I played, I played Risk the other day. I don't know if you've ever played Risk. Um, but it's a competitive board game. And I'm not a competitive guy at all, especially when it comes to board games. But you, you kind of, when you're playing a game, you take into account who the next player is that's, that's got who's the biggest threat, right? Because that's the guy you're going to try and really manipulate and make sure he falls down. Um, But so you look around the board and risk, and you see this color, and if it's really big, you begin to fear it. On that guy's turn, he can attack me, and he can destroy me, and he can do all these other things. And so I'm I'm kind of, I respect that person's size and power, and and I've got respect. I fear it. And so big things bring about fear. And I think we have to keep these two things in tension. We have to keep in tension that God is so near to us, that, that he knows us intimately, that he's, he's all around us, that we can talk to him, that, that we can have a relationship, that it's, it's a father and a, and, and a son or a daughter, and there's, there's such closeness on the one hand, yet our God is a consuming fire, it says in the book of Hebrews, on another. We bring him down to a relational level, but that's not the boundary of how big he is. And if we forget that, it begins to show up in, in our worship songs, and our language, and, and it becomes too touchy and too, too feel-good, and it's all about us and all about the subjective. And we start saying things like, I, 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 and me, 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 because we make God about us and about this relationship, just me and God, and we lose sight of how big he is. And I, I think it's, it's huge. I think in the area of worship, it's huge because we end up with songs sometimes that make it sound like Jesus or God is our, is our, our boyfriend. Now, it's hard enough for guys to sing already. Um, but if you're, you're using language like God is a boyfriend and it's a love song, it just doesn't compute. And, and guys need songs sometimes that bring in the transcendence that Christ is a king and God is a leader as well as the creator of the universe, and there's nothing bigger than that. And we can look at that and, and be in awe of it and sing out to that. And it's no longer just about us, it's about we, or it's about life. I think Lewis, C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia put it better than anybody else. And he takes the character, the Christ character, and he makes him a lion. The name Aslan is the word for lion in Persian, the Persian language. So if you've ever read those or had them read to you when you were a kid or saw the movie, so you've got Aslan the lion, Liam Neeson the voice, <laughs> uh, 
But all throughout the Chronicles of Narnia, you'll get the little kids in, in different books, and the topic always comes up because Aslan usually shows up at the end of the, the story kind of thing. And so somewhere along the, the way, people start asking about Aslan, and, and it's, it's fantastic how Lewis puts it uh, right from the beginning in, the, in the, the line of the Witch in the Wardrobe. The question is asked, is Aslan safe? And the answer is, oh, no. He's not safe. He's not a tame lion, but he's good. And it's a paradox that kind of comes out there, that all throughout the books, it, it's not a tame lion. It's a wild lion. It's, it's a, a lion that with a roar can just shut up everybody in the, in the whole world, in the whole country. And it's not a tame lion, but it's a good lion. It's, it's a lion, and it's, it's a God, it's a Lord that we respect and we hold in reverence and awe. The second thing is this, fear produces balance. So fear means respect. We have to respect the bigness of God, that God is out there, that he is so much beyond what we can grasp even. And the second thing is that when we fear that big God, it brings balance. Chapter 7, starting in verse 16. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be, do be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. Now, that just kind of is a little bit paradoxical, isn't it? Do not be over-righteous. Do not be too good. Um, so fear brings balance. What does he mean by this? I'll just give you a story as, as I try to wrestle with what does this mean to not be too righteous. There's a story of, of Martin Luther, and his best friend was Philip Melanchthon. And Melanchthon was a real structured, organized kind of a person and rule-bound, all of that. And so he was just a really good guy that way. So the story has it that Luther would always tell him that he needed to sin a little. You, you know, Philip, you need to go out and sin a little. God deserves to forgive you for something, okay? And I think Luther kind of said it tongue-in-cheek, but, but he, was, he was trying to push uh, Melanchthon out and say, you know, there's a big world out there, and you need to go live a little and, and quit being so rule-bound. And I think the that the writer of Ecclesiastes is kind of saying the same thing to us, and, and it's paradoxical, and there's a tension there, and he's throwing that out there, and, and it's hard wrestling with it. Jesus, I think, showed us the same thing by how he lived. Jesus was a paradox to the, the religious people of his day. So Jesus comes on the scene, and he shows up at a party that Christians shouldn't get caught at. I mean, we all know there's parties you shouldn't be seen at. Um, Jesus shows up at parties he shouldn't be seen at, and and wine's not a big deal for him, and he's hanging out with sinners, and and the really rule-bound religious people are coming up to him, and they're, they're saying, "We don't. How can you be a teacher of God? How can you be a rabbi? How can how can we respect you if you're if you're doing this, hanging out with the sinners and going to parties?" And I think what Jesus showed us was. Uh, People are more important than rules, and grace wins out over the law. And that when God is small, our pride is big. When God is small, our, our faith becomes a lot about religion 
And religion is simply, am I doing the right things? Am I, am I getting a good grade on my report card? Does that make sense? You, you with me on that? I think the bigger God gets, the, the report card becomes just meaningless paper. It's not about how good I look or appear. It's not about me. Look at God. It's about God. Look how big he is. And the bigger God is, the smaller our pride becomes. And I think we can look at a situation like a party or like Jesus was dealing with and say, you know what? It is better if I go in there and build relationships with those people and love them than if I stay on the outside here and swallow my pride. And I, I don't claim that that's the final answer. But the writer of Ecclesiastes is throwing something at us here, and it's intention. Do not be over-righteous. And so the fear of God brings some kind of wisdom in that's different than rules. It's real easy to follow rules, isn't it? But following wisdom is different because it's situational. You look at a situation and say, what would God have me do here? What would wisdom have me do here? And so the, the book of Proverbs, chapter 9, verse 10, and, and then elsewhere, talks about knowledge. But the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And what we want as Christians is wisdom, to know how to act, what to do, and what to say in given situations. And the bigger God becomes and the less it becomes about us, the more wise we're going to be in how we act because the less it's going to be about our pride and our ego. Third thing here is fear stimulates action or fear stimulates obedience. We're going to kind of skip by this one um, for the sake of time. I'll just give a couple comments. But fear stimulates action, fear stimulates obedience, and we, we know this. When you're afraid of someone, you tend to do what they say, right? Uh, and God is big, and if we fall out of favor with God, it's a dangerous thing. And so even Jesus warns us in Matthew. Um, he says, don't, feel, don't fear the person who can kill your body. Fear the person who can destroy your soul or send your soul to hell. God is bigger than whatever problem you've got right now. And so obedience comes in, in some sense as a powerful motivator to fear God. And I think when we're out of step with God, that, that fear looks a lot more like sinners in the hands of an angry God. Jonathan Edwards' kind of famous sermon. And it looks that way. And when we're walking with God, it's God is leading us and he's a great leader. I think people, as much as Americans kind of would, would chafe at this statement, I think people love to be led. I really do. I think they love to be led as long as they're led well. And there's, there's not a whole lot of great leadership out there, but I think people love to be led when they can trust it and they're led well. And when we get close to God and fear God and understand how big God is and understand who he is, then we love to be led by God. It leads into action. It leads into obedience. And so fear stimulates action. I think the biggest problem with the whole idea of... Uh, God and obedience, and that's a big topic, isn't it? I mean, obedience and, and the rules of Christianity and morality, that's a huge topic, isn't it? I think we chafe at that more because, not because God asks us to be obedient, but because other people point a finger at us and tell us to be obedient. In verse 13, it's kind of the, the conclusion here. It's boiling it all down, it's wrapping it all up, and it says this, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Let me just stop there for one second. The underlying conclusion, if you want. But all, this book has been paradoxical. 
Nothing adds up and there's little things strewn all throughout it and some of them seem to contradict and it's, it's all this rambling and wisdom and insight on life and it's, it's just here and there and then here is where it boils itself down. It gets pinpointed. The, the nail gets kind of driven in right here. Here is the conclusion of the matter. We've been analyzing and reflecting on and phil- philosoph- uh, philosophizing on everything. And Ecclesiastes is the most philosophical book in the Bible, hands down. And all of it's going to come to an end here. And if you know anything about philosophy, that's pretty rare. There is no end to philosophical inquiry. It goes in circles in circles from the time of Plato and Socrates all the way till today, there is no end to the questions because here's the, the idea. Just like the book of Ecclesiastes, the questions about life don't add up. The math doesn't work out. It doesn't, when you, when you try and figure out life and resolve life, you can go round and round all you want, but the equations don't work themselves out. And so the question just keeps being asked and you just keep going in circles over and over and over again. But when you bring God into the equation, that stops the math. It stops the questioning. And that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is doing, is saying, that's enough inquiry, uh, this far, no further, here's the end of it. Um, And the end is this, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. The spiritual relationship that we have with God Seeing God for who he really is, following God. It's the whole duty of man. And we don't like easy answers, and that kind of feels like in one sentence that's just the end of it. Ah, the questions need to keep going. Um, Americans love abundance. Uh, we'd rather have a bucket full of manure than a thimble full of gold. Um, and, and so to stop something you know, isn't easy for us. We'd rather just keep going round and round and round with it. But here's where it stops. Fear rests us. It, the endless wrestling, the endless worry, the feeling of aloneness, existential isolation, all of those things are supposed to resolve themselves in us sitting at the feet of God in awe of Him. You guys, have, many of you have probably experienced this in life. God, why is my loved one sick? God, why is there injustice in the world? Why is there evil in the world? Why is this going on in my life? God, I'm lost. And you wrestle and you wrestle. And then sooner or later, you bow a knee and you realize God is bigger than your problems. And you don't have answers, but you can rest right there at the the foot of God, so to speak, in his sovereignty, in his goodness, in his character, in his ability. And it rests us. It doesn't solve it, but it rests us. This book keeps pointing out over and over, all through the whole book, striving. It's a striving after the wind. All of life, work and pleasure uh, and money and job and career and all the things that run us and keep us up at night, those are striving after the wind. We're never going to be able to resolve it. The math's not going to end up or work out, and we strive. And what the writer of Ecclesiastes is really offering to us is this, you need to submit Striving doesn't work, and, and it doesn't end. And, it, and so what you need to do is come to the point where you finally bow your knee and you submit. And you realize God is God, and you're not. He's in control. You never will be, and you can rest there. Even if it doesn't resolve it all to your satisfaction, it's at least a stopping point where you can rest and then move on with your life. I've philosophized without God, and it ended in a bottle. 
Okay, I'll be honest with you, because you, you can't keep going endlessly. Sooner or later, you got to stop it. For me, it was a bottle. For other people, it's drugs. For some, it's other forms of addiction or shopping or, or this or that or the other. But the human mind cannot just keep going endlessly with no resolution. The striving, we find ways to escape all that meaningless striving. And what the writer is telling us here what Jesus told us in the New Testament, what the whole counsel of God, the Bible, would say is at some point you have to stop and submit. The striving ends not at a bottle, but it ends in submission, humble submission to a God who is much bigger than you or me. Now, it's one thing to talk about this. That's another thing to experience it, the whole first-person, third-person um, breakdown. It's like uh, the blind date thing, you know, it, your friend can tell you all he wants or she wants to. You know, she's got a great personality. Uh, until you see that person, you're not sold. Forget it. I mean, no amount of information from them is going to convey to you what you need to experience firsthand. Does that make sense? Okay, God is big. And whatever problem you're carrying with or you've been carrying since you were a little kid ends in that relationship with God when we submit to him. That's where it ends. That's the end of the matter. And so the difference between talking about a vacation or going on a vacation is huge. Right now, I'm telling you about a vacation when what you need to do is experience it. You need to experience that God is big, not just hear me talk about it. You need to bow the knee and experience the peace of mind that surpasses all understanding that Paul talked about in Philippians. You need to know that by experience. The only thing I can offer to you is pick up your Bible and just read. Let God speak to you through reading this Bible because you need to experience it. There's, I'll give you two illustrations that kind of hammer this whole idea of God rests us, the bigness of God, how how awe inspiring he is, majestic he is, that that somehow rests us. There's two examples. First one is from a movie grand, called Grand Canyon. And if you saw it, it's got uh, Kevin Klein and Danny Glover in it, and it's set in, in Los Angeles, and it's all about life being messed up. And these guys meet each other when one guy's car breaks down and, and he's being held up at gunpoint, and the tow truck driver shows up. And the famous line there for me was, Danny Glover says to the, the, the gang members, this is not the way it's supposed to be. To me, that's, that, that's the whole world being messed up, sin, all that kind of stuff, us being crooked. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And this movie portrays that meaninglessness all the way through. Every scene change is with a helicopter. Uh, with you know, I mean, helicopters are one thing, but when you see a helicopter with the searchlight going, I mean, you, that's a symbol for oh, some bad guys out there, gang members again. You know, someone stole something. They're looking for some guy. And that was the scene change. Every scene change was a helicopter with its searchlight. And they were trying to emphasize the, just the meaninglessness of life. And so these families kind of come together in this strange way, build bonds, and then at the end, they go to the Grand Canyon. And the movie kind of ends with all these people at sunset uh, on the rim of the Grand Canyon looking out at this thing. And it's so big, and it's so majestic. And it's so amazing. And they just kind of are in awe of it and they stop. And all the mess kind of goes away and all of it kind of resolves itself. And I don't think it would really end that way, but in the Hollywood movie it does. Uh, but that's kind of my picture of 
of looking at something amazing and it just rests you, it stops you. God is like, and I think Jesus is like, and prayer can be like, um, staring at those two lights I'm staring at up there. Uh, and we're all in that position. We're all human. We've all got our own lives and our own sets of issues. And when we come to God, uh, there's oftentimes when we experience that light and we want to look away and avoid and kind of put a wall up or become numb because it's beats down on us. Just like this woman didn't want to meet Jesus because of her shame. He was big in her mind. She was very small in her mind, and that fear was going to keep her from Jesus. And what God is saying is, you know, you got to come to me. Realize that I'm big, but in that bigness, I don't identify you with your sin or your shortcoming. I see you as someone I made, and I love you. And just come look at me in the eyes, no matter how hard it is, so that I can tell you I love you, so that I can show you that I don't identify you with your sin, even though you might identify yourself that way. We label ourselves. I'm divorced. Uh, I've got a bad temper. I failed at my business. I'm not good with money. Um, I can't control this problem or that problem, or I'm insecure. That's one we don't really share with other people, right? It's like the big no-no in this world. We're all, you know, all of you are inse- we're all insecure at some level. Well, we might as well just admit it. But the point is, we never share that with anybody. We hide our insecurities. But in our in our mind, we know I'm insecure. And what God is saying is, just bring that to me. Sit at the edge of the Grand Canyon. See how big I am. Come talk to me in prayer. Read the Bible. Let me melt those things away, so that you can be at peace. So that I can rest you. That is the end of the matter. Don't try and strive and solve life on your own. It ain't going to work. Just submit, come to me, meet me, and let me carry those burdens for you. Let me show you what grace is. And just come look at me in the eyes, no matter how hard it is, so that I can tell you I love you, so that I can show you that I don't identify you with your sin, even though you might identify yourself that way. We label ourselves. I'm divorced. Uh, I've got a bad temper. I failed at my business. I'm not good with money. Um, I can't control this problem or that problem, or I'm insecure. That's one we don't really share with other people, right? It's like the big no-no in this world. We're all, you know, all of you are in, we're all insecure at some level. Well, we might as well just admit it. But the point is, we never share that with anybody. We hide our insecurities. But in our in our mind, we know I'm insecure. And what God is saying is, just bring that to me. Sit at the edge of the Grand Canyon. See how big I am. Come talk to me in prayer. Read the Bible. Let me melt those things away so that you can be at peace, so that I can rest you. That is the end of the matter. Don't try and strive and solve life on your own. It ain't going to work. Just submit, come to me, meet me, and let me carry those burdens for you. Let me show you what grace is. Let's pray as the worship team comes up for a final song. Father, our our heart and our head don't always talk to each other. And my one prayer for this morning is that we would know what's really down in our hearts. The fears we have, the, the striving, the tapes that we keep playing over and over, the hang-ups that we can't get over, just the hurt, the pain. Father, that we'd be aware of it and that, that somehow, some way, we would walk out of here with a commitment to find you and lay those things at your feet. 
that we would rather submit and find that relationship with you that would kind of rest us rather than running and running and running and running. Father, let the running stop in Christ's name.